The Boys of Tech with Edwin Herman and Brett King. It's Monday the 27th of September 2010 and it's time for episode 85 of The Boys of Tech, a weekly podcast covering the tech stories of the week. Your hosts are Edwin Herman, that's me, and Brett King. Welcome along, Brett. Howdy. Brett joins us over Skype as usual. And uh, hey, you know, Brett, I've, I've spent a bit of time in the garden today. It's here in, in the Southern Hemisphere. It's you know turning into spring and summer. It feels like summer. It's really still spring. So I got out mm-hmm. in the garden and I, I salted a whole heap of um, weeds. And I, I use salt because I don't like to use chemicals for weed killer. Salt is a fantastic weed killer. Mm-hmm. It lasts you about nine months. Incredible. There's a tip for anyone out there. If you want to use weed killer, a natural weed killer, just buy a bag of salt. I bought 25 kgs for $13. <laughs> wow. Yeah, you can, it goes a long way. It really does. So if you're looking for something natural, I definitely recommend it. Just uh, just be careful. Don't 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 put it too close to your to plants you want to keep because it, you know, it'll kill them. It, it will <laughs> kill them. <laughs> Absolutely. Purpose, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you need to leave a good ten or fifteen centimeters or so. Yeah, and you safe. don't salt any earth that you're gonna. If you're trying to kill weeds that you can plant something else there, you don't want to use salt either. Ah, uh, no, because it, it kind Cause of... Because uh, it hangs around for ages. It does. It does. <laughs> you're not going to be able to plant anything because nothing's going to live in that soil for a while. That's right. And uh, let's kick off the show then. There's a, a number of stories to talk about. I want to kick off with Facebook, a couple of stories on Facebook. First up, Facebook has suffered its worst outage in four years. Yes. Now, did you notice it, Brett? Because you're a, a Facebook user. Uh, no, I didn't notice it because while I'm a Facebook user, I'm not a frequent Facebook user. You're not a heavy, heavy user. No. Probably look at Facebook once a month or so. Okay, well, they or did some. Tells me to look at it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's yeah, exactly. You get a, <laughs> a nudge from your friend going, "Hey, you know, check this out." But yeah, no, the first worst, rather not first, but worst outage in four years. Mm-hmm. And there was a number of factors, I understand, because Q West, which is one of the large network carriers, had outages. But I, I think, if I understand this correctly, it's not just limited to Q West, was it? I mean. Facebook no, didn't, no. Uh, didn't they have their own? First, there was lots of speculation as to because the 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 Q West outage and the Facebook outage happened at about the same time. So there was lots of speculation as to whether or not, based on Facebook's very minimal response as to what it was that was going wrong, people started to think maybe it was the the Q West because they said they were having an issue with a third party network provider. So people were thinking Q West. But yeah, later on, Facebook finally released a statement and has nothing to do with a third party network provider. They were saying it was a, a configuration issue and that a configuration value had been interpreted as invalid and so the API was attempting to make a call a query to a database cluster to get the new value but because there were so many uh, so many queries to this database cluster the database cluster was slowing down we're talking hundreds of thousands a second aren't we yeah and it basically created an infinite loop where if the API would query the database cluster the database cluster would not respond the API would register that as an invalid uh, an invalid value and hence query the 
database cluster to get a valid value. And it was just causing this massive spiral effect. So Facebook, to fix it, basically had to take their site down. Yeah, they did. They turned off their site. They They turned off Facebook. They pushed pushed that big red button. Yeah, they pushed the big red (laughs) off switch. And then very slowly, (laughs) after the cluster had cleared, started to bring it back online and open it up to more and more. I can just see Zuckerberg at this big control panel, this nice big push me red button, you know, thump. (laughs) (laughs) I can't. I I see him sitting at his home on his couch watching telly and possibly calling somebody to say, you know what, just turn it off. (laughs) Yeah, probably. (laughs) And then then there was some techno person in the background doing some command line things in a black and green screen. Yep. Uh, you know, and half a dozen of those lines, and then the site went off. You know, that, that's how it happened. There's no big red button, but it, it's kind of nice to, to think <laughs> there is. Yep. Yeah, big panic button. But the the other story on Facebook was a 14 year old girl about to turn 15 wanted to have a party, and as you do, and her her mother agreed. Yeah, you can have this party. She agreed to allow 15 guests, 15 guests for her daughter's 15th birthday that sounds fair enough so the girl goes and registers an event on facebook and sends out you know sends out invites to to people to attend this event this this party for her this birthday party and she thought it went out to 15 people it went out to everyone and twenty-one thousand people accepted and said they'd be there uh, indeed. <laughs> that was a girl not uh, paying particular attention when she was creating the event. <laughs> but it does highlight just how misleading and how easy it is to accidentally uh, broadcast something public, which you had intended to keep private, if the settings are not easy to follow, if if you're not well educated in the use of the service or software that you're currently using. And that's basically what happened here. Even though the events, to create an event, you have to have left ticked a checkbox, which said this makes it public. And there's been a lot of backlash over the fact that, you know, that's an opt out system. And a lot of people just don't see it or don't read it and just kick okay and create events, which are suddenly public for everyone. When it should be more an opt in system where to make it public, you should be specifically making it public instead of the other way around. But that does go against a lot of what we've seen from Facebook, where Facebook is about making more and more stuff public by default. Yeah, so well, there's, you know, I mean, been, a, there's been a big criticism. backlash, a lot, of, yeah. a lot of people complaining and a lot of news sites, media, highlighting this as another security failing of Facebook. Well, it certainly has got the anti-Facebook brigade all riled up. And, you know, and, yeah, people have been saying, you know, that Facebook really should simplify the, the privacy settings and make things a little clearer and a little bit more yeah. obvious. So private I mean, by default. That's, yeah, and private that's by the default. Big, the big yeah. cry is yeah. everything should be private by default, not public by default, which is Facebook's way. But it still, you know, there's a little onus there. This is a, a 14-year-old girl. She's... Growing up in the modern age, she should have a little more awareness about her. And if there's no part during her invitation process where she's had to specify who she wants to invite to it because it's got this public thing ticked, then, you know, 
she's got to take a little bit of that responsibility. You know, the police stepped in because the, the town in which she lives, and this is in the UK, it's only small a, tiny, a small town, tiny. yeah, 30,000 people. And the police have got involved and they said they'd be patrolling to make sure that they don't get 21,000 people turn up. Of and- course, because it became an internet thing, didn't it? It became a Facebook phenomenon. It did. And so people will have applied going, oh, this is some girl who's made it public when she shouldn't have. And they would, Let's people say will, will be turn there. up. <laughs> yeah. People will turn up to these sorts of things. There have been several instances in the past where people have created parties or events, invitations, and put them out on Facebook and have had, you know, thousands or, or you know, hundreds or thousands of responses and then have had huge, you know, people turn up random who had saw, seen it on Facebook or on other social media and just randomly turned up and trashed people's places. Because yeah, that does happen. That, that has happened before. To yeah. events, which, and they didn't send it out, making too much public. Yeah. Well, well, we talk about the, privacy and and those sorts of you know the do's and don'ts of things you should let happen or broadcast online, and how careful you should be whenever you are creating something which is going to supply private information to specific parties. That you are damn sure that what you're creating is only going to provide it to those specific parties. It's just another highlight of be wary online. Be careful about what you click. Be careful about who you give information to. Double check before you click OK. <laughs> Double check before you p- click send. Absolutely. After all that, the event is off. Her, her mother has actually banned her from using Facebook. I think she's taken her internet away from Yeah, from she's, her taken her, as well. she's taken her computer away. The whole computer, she's not allowed. Yeah, yeah. She's like grounded till she's 21 or something. I think well, that was the quote from the mother. Well, that'll She's last six months. Until her twenty first birthday. <laughs> well, that'll last six months. <laughs> uh, but it's ah, uh, it is quite funny. But and it's not an overreaction of the the police and the the mother. In fact, because as I said, there have been previous cases where these events have been made public and people have turned up and trashed places. Yes, houses have been trashed, absolutely. Houses have been trashed, you know, all kinds of nastiness going on. So they're right to be worried. The, the police are right to be concerned and right to be then. Because, you know, even though the original group was cut down, shut down, the original event was closed, another person created a group saying, we're going to go there. And it got 8,000 members to this group of people who, even though they know the event's been cancelled and they know it was a mistake, they're going to go anyway just to see if people turn up, if anything happens. It's the ultimate in rubbernecking, really. They've seen a crash and burn on the internet. Now they want to see if it has any effects in the real world. Well, speaking of crash and burn, Microsoft thinks that's exactly what's going to happen to Blu-ray. Nice little segue there. Uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's actually quite funny, this story, because for once, Microsoft are saying exactly what Apple's been saying all along, that, hey, Blu-ray's going to be, you know, it's, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, It's, yeah, it's going to be been and gone very soon before you know it. Before, before Blu- Blu-ray actually gets some serious uptake, it's going to be gone. That's what Microsoft is saying. Yeah, it's not Microsoft being bitter that the horse they backed failed. <laughs> well, HD DVD, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but what, it's from the same part of Microsoft, because this is all coming out of the Xbox group. It's from the same part that said that hardly anyone plays PC games anymore. <laughs> which is kind of a ridiculous statement when you think about it. Exactly. There's still a huge market for PC games. A huge market. And it's this, yeah, they, they, they lost the race in the physical media. They lost the physical media race. And so now they're backing digital 
everything's digital downloads. You know, you'll be able to stream full HD, 1080p content, movies, TV shows. You'll be able to stream it all. What world are they living in? What reality are they living in? Yeah, but, Even uh, yeah, the majority it's happen of one America day. cannot do that. Yeah, but it will happen one day. They, I think they're right. Oh, that it, yeah, it one day, happen. 10, 15, 20 years down the track. It's probably a bit slower than we think. You know, the, the, <laughs> It's massively slower than we think because not only do we have to get past the bandwidth issue to every house and the backbones to stream the stuff around the world globally, we have to get past the fact that all of these individual providers of internet service and the myriad ways that they pay their fee-based services, their, their subscription services, are they bandwidth related? Because with your standard sort of 20 gig, 25 gig in New Zealand sort of allotment of bandwidth, how many full HD, 1080p quality movies am I going to actually get to stream? Not many. And why the hell would I want to stream it if I'm just paid for it? Why can't I have it? Why can't I watch it again without having to waste another umpteen gigabytes worth of my traffic and my bandwidth to watch it again. I don't think physical media is dying as quickly as they want it to. It's good for them. It's good for the producers because it means we have to pay for it every single time we want to watch it. It's like, sure, we only pay five bucks to watch the movie, but then I only pay 20, 25 bucks to own the movie and watch it a hundred times, whereas I would only get to watch it five times. <laughs> well, it depends <laughs> what it is, because you know what? There's not a lot of things I would watch five times. There are oh, some, but not a lot. Watch five times. What's that? I have a humongous DVD library. Yeah, well, you would, because you're a DVD freak. <laughs> you <sighs> like all these things. I like you're movies. Re- yeah, you and do. I watch you do. things multiple times. You do. I like TV series, and I'll watch them multiple times. Sure, if it was something that I wasn't sure whether or not I'd like it, I'd watch it in a different media first. Something where either I don't have to pay or where I'll pay a small amount. And if I think it's rubbish, then I won't buy it. But if I thought it was good enough, something interesting enough that I might want to watch it again, you have an inkling that I'd like to see something with some mindless epic action or whatever, then having purchased it, I can just get it off my shelf and watch it whenever I want. And it doesn't impact on anything else. And on the... The other side, the other aspect of this, of playing PC games, I don't think you will find anybody who is an actual gamer, who can claim to be a real gamer, who thinks that any platform other than the PC is the best for first-person shooters. FPS, Quake, Counter-Strike, all those, Team Fortress, all of these brilliant first-person shooter games are rubbish on a console. Because on a console, you've got to turn on your auto-aim. It's just, yeah, uh, it's no, yeah, it's, I know. The mouse, you can't beat the mouse. Is that you what cannot saying? beat the mouse for yeah. actual skillful accuracy. Yep, agree. Totally if you want agree. to play it on a console, then you've got some sort of feature to help you auto aim because aiming with your thumb is ridiculous. Oh, look, even <laughs> I know this and I'm not a gamer. <laughs> there are some sorts, some styles of games which just are. Console. You wouldn't want to play them on anything other than the console because that's that's what they're built for, and that's how they they everything's just intuitive with that controller. But there are certain genres of game which a mouse and a keyboard are just the epitome of showing your true skill. Well, then you just can't do that with a controller. Well, that's Microsoft on Blu-ray. The other thing that Microsoft's been targeting also is Android. Microsoft has come up saying, you know, this Android thing, it's not really free because it's 
laden with patent infringing bits and pieces in there. And at the end of the day, that there's a cost to that. If even if it's not to the uh, end person, it's there's still a cost to that. Android is not free. That's what Microsoft says. Oh, what part of it? Where? Because uh, I haven't seen other than the claims that it's patent infringing. I haven't seen any hide nor hair of information about what patents it's infringing. And why haven't they gone after it already? Well, why haven't they gone you, after Google for the development of Android and offering some, you know, because Google offers Android for free. Why haven't they gone after Google and the Android developers for this patent infringement thing instead of just mouthing off about the fact that putting, spreading rumors about it being patent infringing? It, even well, if it well, is, on, HT, I have HT, not gone up against have, it. Yeah, but you have to remember HTC, right, who, who make Android-based phones, they mm-hmm. did pay Microsoft for a patent license uh, some time ago. I, yeah. I can't remember what it was. What it was over. It was. Yeah, but that's a handset maker. Yeah, but they don't. It's because they don't want to be sued. Yeah, I know, but but that's the handset maker. Why has not Microsoft gone to Google and said your Android operating system is infringing these patents? Pay us a licensing fee for so it. You think it's a load of bollocks? I I am. Puzzled or you question with this? Yeah, I am puzzled at because you know Apple's put a case against HTC as well, saying that uh, their Android and their Windows Mobile handsets violate a number of Apple patents. So I'm really at a loss as to why these people who say that things are infringing their patents are going after people using the system they say is infringing their patents instead of the people creating the operating system they say is infringing their patents. Why have they not gone after Google? You would have thought they would have taken out those patent knives and stabbed them into Google, not stabbed them into the people using Google's. I don't, I don't see why. It's, it's all politicking. Well, the timing's quite interesting because it's only a few weeks before Microsoft is due to launch the Windows Phone 7. Well, yeah, indeed. So I wonder if they're, all they're trying to do is get into people's minds that Android is bad, there are problems with Android, legal issues with Android, don't go for Android, and suddenly they works up to this big crescendo and there's this massive launch. Here's the Windows Phone 7, and yes, everyone goes for it thinking in the back of their mind subliminally that Android is bad, Android is bad. So, oh, let's yeah, get Android get is free, but Windows it's bad because I could get sued, but I could instead pay the license fees required to Microsoft to use yeah. their Windows Phone 7 on get, my yeah, handsets and still. That could be their, their strategy. Uh, well, yeah, that's that's definitely what their strategy is. It, it's blatant. <laughs> it's blatantly obvious that that's their strategy. But on the other hand, you've got, you got to give it to them. There, there could be something in there. We- or there could very well be. But it, it, it still, you know, twists my noodle as to why they go after people who are not the people making the thing which they say is infringing their fees. You would have thought well, they, they haven't would have, gone after uh, anyone in particular. They've just come out saying Android's bad. And Android infringes patents. That, that's really what they're saying. They haven't gone after anyone specifically at this point. Because mm, so, we don't know what it was that they went after HTC for and HTC then paid them for. And what are the patents that Apple is claiming that HTC is, is infringing on? You know, I get lost in all these patent claims. I mean, it, it, oh, indeed, there are a, just so many know, of them. Just a big so many of them are so similar. Yeah. You've got to go. Well, which one supersedes which? And some of them are just ridiculous. You yeah, go, absolutely. Hell that? 
pass the patent. That, the patent examiner was <laughs> was asleep and just clicking accept on these ones. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> Which is why there have been so many calls for patent reform in the United States, because it's just so easy to get a patent on anything. They might as well don't check. <laughs> wonder if anyone's uh, patented breathing yet. I'm sure if you if you worded it correctly, you could get that through. <laughs> yeah, it's all in the wording, isn't it? Now, Brett, I want to get your point of view on this Intel story because just last week it was revealed that Intel have this uh, this deal where they sell you a CPU, but it's kind of locked down. It's it's disabled, if you like. Parts of it are disabled slightly, and mm-hmm. for fifty dollars, you can buy this upgrade kit which is basically a code you, you buy this code for 50 bucks punch it in to a piece of software and it unleashes a bit of extra cache cache memory and mm-hmm. i think also a few more uh, it unlocks hyperthreading a few more threads what do you think about that well well this is only a, a test at the moment intel's only doing it with in certain markets with their with this low-end processor but it yeah it does raise interesting questions because intel's been doing this sort of thing for ages not in pay money and put in a code to unlock features. It's been selling hardware, which has greater potential than what it's inherently providing. It's hardware locked. But it's basically, it's what's been called binning. It's basically chips that they had were a higher spec chip, but parts of it didn't quite come out right. It didn't quite get manufactured properly. And there are bits of it which don't, really work as intended. So what they do is they hardware lock those bits of the chip out and they sell it as a lower spec than what it was originally intended to be. So it's perfectly functional at that lower spec. It's just that they've disabled all of the bits which would have made it a higher spec chip, but they were broken basically when it was created. And so there've been these chips on the market for ages and they're Generally, overclockers will get them and unlock bits of them to see whether or not those bits are actually broken or whether or not it was just a different part was broken. And when they were um, binning it to put as a lower spec, they just lowered it again. And so people have been doing this. But what this is, this is actually a fully working, functioning chip, which they have deliberately locked bits off, which you can then pay to have unlocked. I think it's ridiculous, actually. I think it's quite ridiculous. It's If it's a fully functional chip, why not sell it as the fully functional chip? Why sell it as something less when and then demand extra money to get full performance out of it? I saw a comparison of what Intel is doing with this chip and certain games where you can pay for extra content, pay for downloadable content, and it's... It, it was a mis, I think, a misrepresenting comparison because in most cases, in nine times out of 10 with downloadable content, what you're getting is extra. It's not part of the original package. It is extra stuff developed to go on top of it. There have been some cases where it is the downloadable content is parts which had been pre-developed for the game and then just not provided. And there have been several games that have come out with bits like that. But the majority of downloadable content is stuff that has been developed after the fact to enhance the game. And that's completely different to this position where you have a fully formed piece of hardware which has then been crippled to then make you pay more to uncripple it. Yeah, but you have to remember when Intel are selling these chips, they're not selling them as the full potential. They, they, you know as a customer that it still can only do such and such. 
Mm. So it, it well, but, seems, uh, the fact is, you know what? It's no the way it I just thought. seems odd. Why would okay? Let's let's put it this way. I see the two products side by side. Why would I pay for the lower spec one and then pay more to have it upgraded to the same spec as the one which was sitting on the shelf next to it? Yeah, well, there could be good reasons. I'll tell processes you why. I'll tell you why. Are, because what if you don't need don't that get right now? Processes so quickly. You don't need if you don't need that right now, and you think later on is uh, maybe the next operating system, be it Windows Seven or whatever's beyond that, is more taxing. Then you might decide to unleash it. So in the meantime, you haven't shelled out that the, uh, that money's in your bank. You don't need it. It's, I, it's just another I, way of upgrading. I mean, it hey, is, think, of, think about it this way. Software is exactly the same. There's a whole bunch of packages out there that you, you can buy for a certain amount and they do a whole heap of other stuff, but you have to unlock them by entering licensing keys. So you only license for two out of the 10 modules. That's all that will work. Mm-hmm. It's exactly the same as that, but it's just it, it just seems It just seems silly. I, actually, seems, I like it. You know, not, I like it. Would you do it? That's the point. I cannot see any situation where I would actually do that. When I am upgrading my computer, when I get to the end of life and discover that my computer is no longer performing properly or I need to do something else, the progress of hardware has stepped so much for, you know, advanced so many steps that for me to just upgrade bits of my current computer would be more costly or less performing than me to just go scrap that and start from fresh. Okay, I'll give you another scenario. What about PC manufacturers? So they can put these chips in some computers and uh, and you can have like an optional upgrade to uh, a different chip. You don't need to tell the customer it's the same chip, but they're unlocking it with the software code. So when they when they when when you choose your PC, choose your configuration, the customer can choose, oh, do I want hyper-threading or don't I need it? If I do, it's an I extra mean, 50 like, bucks. I uh, mean, least PC sorts of this. Sorry? like for leased PC situations and, and things like that. Or when you're buying prepackaged. Or, or just buying prepackaged, build your own, uh, you know, you, well, as in, you know, you choose well, what you want. Well, not build your own, it's because build your own, no, I'd, I'd pick the, the CPU. No, 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 but build your own where you go to a, a site that you you say, I want yeah, this yeah, much, yeah, yeah, that. Prepackaged proprietaries is yeah, what that, I call Yeah, you know, exactly that. Places so, like So that's Dell, good for them. That's good for them. They just buy, say, you know, a thousand well, yeah, of these but CPUs then why would you in one have go. This being sold... In a consumer's place, that would be a system for them to to use. Oh, sure. I, I'm just giving you another scenario, but I, a, I don't see it as a, a retail. Oh, I see what you're saying. That, yeah, I don't know. I, as a, a computer purchaser, wouldn't go and buy a CPU and then think, you know what? I bought myself a dud. Maybe I will pay that extra money to get the other one. But surely you must have made purchases and think, oh, I should have got the, I don't know, the one terabyte drive. I only bought the 500 gig, you know. Sure, you must sometimes well, see, do that. All I see then is there's a one terabyte drive. If we, you know, we'll take this as a hardware, a hard drive analogy. There's one terabyte drive, but I only need a 500 gig. There's a 500 gig, which is a one terabyte, but it's only providing 500 gig until I unlock it. I then buy it and take it home. I then search on the internet, find myself a little widget on one of those not so legit sites. Install it on my computer for free and unlock a terabyte of hard drive. Well, there you go. I know, you crack it. Well, there you go. That's exactly why this is good. That's what well, I see them opening up Because you can crack it. <laughs> I, that's all I see them opening up for. It's like, yeah, why would you do that? There is why would you provide that position? Because that's all they're doing. They're just putting it out there as a way to tempt people to crack it and then make free everybody's performance upgrade. <laughs> it's 
Oh, why well, would you know, they look, do from it? The, from, so the customer, <laughs> from the customer point of view, I think it's fine. Yes, I agree you could look at Intel and think, what are you thinking when you're doing this? But at the end of the day, I still think it's fine for the customer. Well, most of the time people won't be doing it unless they're thinking they're getting a deal. Like, well, I buy this cheap one and then for 50 bucks extra, I can make it, I can make it slightly better. Yeah, but it's when I, I want to. That's the whole point. It's like not now, because as you say, if it's now, you just get the other chip anyway. But if it's like, oh, I don't think I need it, but it's kind of but like it's uh, fifty oh, bucks. Yeah, it's fifty bucks. Fifty bucks when you're purchasing your processor. Fifty bucks when you're building your computer is nothing. It's insignificant. Yeah, yeah there is that. There is that. All that performance, and it is not a. It's. A modest performance boost. It's not a significant performance boost. It depends what you're doing, but yeah, for everyday stuff, it's it's fairly modest. Yeah, and for your everyday computer user, who this would be the most appealing to, they're the kind of user who wouldn't do it generally. But isn't that what this trial is all about anyway? To see if it's uh, something they want to go. Mar- yeah, oh, indeed. See if it is, there is a market for these things. And as you say, maybe it turns out that there isn't, and this will go away. But I, you know, Intel are, are just exploring, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's just odd. It's just <laughs> it's another just step down one of those odd marketing ways. But I do, I do think it's very just odd to buy something which has been purposefully crippled. Why would you pay for it? Why would I pay for a thing that's been purposely crippled when it's only 50 bucks to make it full powered? Why did they not just make it fully unlocked and charge 50 bucks more? Well, maybe not so useful, but I want to move on to something that probably is or can be quite useful. A bit of a gadget. This time it's a reprogrammable credit card. It's basically a single card, single single physical card, but it can hold two accounts, so two sort of virtual, if you like, credit card accounts on the one card, and you can switch between them with a button. What yeah. Do you, what do you think? Uh, once again, I think it's quite odd. Um, <laughs> and the reason I, I think it's quite me. odd thought, is because it uses it's, thought, it's magnetic stripe. Yeah. What are we phasing out? Uh, yeah, we're phasing out magnetic stripe. Exactly. It's it's a magnetic stripe card with a couple of buttons on it to switch between accounts. And what I, I'm a little confused between the description of the card and then the physical representation that they've got of the card. Because they say in the description of the card that it's got a, a, a little tiny display on it that obscures part of the credit card number. But when you look at the picture of it, it's got both credit card numbers in full on it. Yeah, I'm not sure quite. Yeah, I saw there's a picture that's floating around on the news articles that, that I, I agree that that's about, I can't make. So the whole point of this card weird. was to make, to add extra protection and security features for the consumer, but I can't see that on there. Well, look. I, can't, you- I, I did find amusing several of the comments that people have led on some of the news articles about this card of the, the trouble people are going to get into when they have purchased something by swiping their card and have inadvertently used the wrong account. Instead of using their low interest account, they use their high interest business account. <laughs> well, you know, I've actually done something similar because uh, I, I had two credit cards, a work one and a personal one. And when I was at the airport uh, at the parking, I whipped out my work credit card quite by accident. I pop, popped that in the slot. It was only $2, luckily. I was only there for a very short amount of time to, to pick someone up. 
but it could have been worse. Uh, yeah, but, you know, it happens in the physical world. Uh, look, It happens the, in the, the physical world this- indeed, but even more so when the only identifier that to which account you're using on the card is a little light. Yeah, yeah, that's true. The thing is, I <laughs> like they'll... the idea, though, of combining two cards into one. That's, the, that's neat. Or yeah, even yeah, three yeah. or four but cards you, you into one. You can already do that with a lot of things. Because even now, with your we standards... We can have debit and credit ATM, on the one yeah, card. Yeah, you can have yeah, debit and true. credit on one card. Yeah, that's true. But you can have completely different accounts. Is, is with you know The concept of having you know a Visa work card and a, I don't know, a MasterCard personal card com- completely different on the one physical piece of plastic... I mm-hmm. like that idea. Mm. But then, uh, yeah, I have not seen from the picture and the description how it makes it even more secure because it's that's the big selling thing for this multi-account card is that it makes it more secure. Yeah, because you need you. a PIN number to unlock the to, – to basically switch between accounts. You need a yeah, PIN number. Yeah, you need a, a PIN number to switch between the accounts, but you need a PIN number on – you know, anybody with security conscious who's using a credit card these days has a pin on their credit card anyway to prevent no, I, I think this is an ad- addition to that, isn't it? So it's another pin. I, I think it is. I think it is an addition yeah. to, to the, the pin number that goes with the account. So this is just to say to the card, switch to account number two and reveal me the, you know, or activate account two right now. You need a special pin to do that. And How do you do it? You could, do you do it on the card or do you do it at the point of sale? From what I can tell, you do it on the card because I think that's what those little buttons are, but I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I'm just going off the description that I've been reading about. But Yeah. yeah, it's, yeah there's, it's, there's not enough information about what are the secure, actual proper security features on this card for yeah. us to really be able to make any good calls on whether or not it's actually going to be a neat thing. It's funny, it's funny though because I, I thought you would jump at this. I thought you'd say, wow, this is cool. Well... I would normally, but it's so light on its information on what makes it more secure. All I see is a single card which has multiple of my accounts on it and is one thing for people to steal and then get access to many things instead of the several things to steal. Sure, of course, if you keep all your cards in your wallet and your wallet goes missing, then all your plastic goes at the same time. So there's a valid point in that. And it's a valid point in stopping yourself having the stuffed wallet effect, where your wallet's too fat to close and put in your pocket anymore. But it's another kind of putting all of your eggs into the one basket. And it's so light on details of its features to protect those, those eggs that I'm, I'm not sold on it. I'm not sold on it. And I'm querying the fact that it's a magnetic stripe card where everything is converting to chips. This is probably just a proof of concept at this point. I mean, who Mm. knows? Maybe you'll get a reprogrammable chip card. What I am quite interested in is that because it is a magnetic stripe card and you switch between the accounts, it rewrites the card. It rewrites the magnetic strip. That that fascinates me. Tiny little card which can rewrite its own strip. It's like, what, what else could you do with it? Mm. What other cool, neat things could you have on there? You could have it set to it's a credit card or a, or a debit card and also the swipe card into your building. But then, yeah. once again, you're putting even more eggs into one basket and that just needs one person to be able to grab hold of that media, work out how to crack it, and they've got access to all your stuff. Mm. I want to know that what are the security features that protect all of those eggs that you are entrusting onto one device. Well, tough questions so from me, Brad. Be. You're a tough customer. You're a tough it customer. Cr- 
I am. I am. I. <laughs> I think that's wise, though. It's very I wise. A, I am a devil's advocate. I will look at all the different sides of something and go, well, is this really going to be a benefit to me? Or am I really just opening up another place for somebody to shoot me in the foot? <laughs> well, that's why we have you on the show, Brett. That is exactly why we have you on the show. If you weren't here, the show would go something like, hey, this is really cool. We can have these two accounts on one card. You should go and get yourself one. End of story. Let's move on. <laughs> That's <laughs> why we have you on the show. To, no, to, you to should question. think about it. We yeah. <laughs> Are they actually secure? Will somebody be able to pinch that and then be able to get into your building, get into your savings and ruin your business? <laughs> well, <laughs> I want to I I talk about an, another gadget, Brett, that, that I know you'll like. This is a just a, a really proof of concept type thing, bit of uh, marketing for Panasonic. What they've done is built a little humanoid robot, pretty small, about seven inches tall. And uh, weighs about a kilo. Yeah. And it's going to walk, literally walk, a 500k journey from Tokyo to Kyoto. Now, now by the way, <laughs> say, say Tokyo to Kyoto 10 times fast. Uh, uh, no. <laughs> yeah. no. No, don't. Yes, you're talking about Mr. Evolta. Yes, that's yes, right. Panasonic's robot. They've had him do all kinds of things. He's in the Guinness, World, Guinness Book of World Records. He is, indeed. He is a pretty neat little, little robot they've got there. So what do you think? It's a great piece of marketing. It's a great piece of marketing. The, the technology behind it is, it's been around for a while, but they are using him in interesting ways. And this is really kind of a very touristy piece of information because he is going to be walking the old route between Kyoto and Tokyo. The foot route, which not a lot of people do today, you can still walk it, though some parts of it are really hard to, to find and it can be quite rough. Uh, but it's a good piece of marketing for not only the, the residents of Japan highlighting this piece of history, this legendary route, uh, this legendary ancient road, but also to highlight this around the world. I think it's a great piece of marketing. The robot itself doesn't have enough batteries on, on his back or in his body, if you like, does he? So he's, he's actually pulling a cart, I think, of, of batteries. Yeah, yeah. Because he's such a tiny little robot, he, he calls... He pulls his battery pack along with him, and it's what it's like twelve AA batteries, which is actually not a lot. Because <laughs> well, he is tiny. You said seven inches tall. Well, true, He's seven inches tall. He is a tiny little device, and he, he walks in a little cylinder like a, a hamster wheel. <laughs> yeah, I think that's so he doesn't trip up and stuff. You know, obviously, yeah, and, yeah. yeah. But um, you know, what's interesting about this is that he can walk a whole day, and in fact, he only walks during the day, and only when it's fine. Not you know, if it's raining, he won't walk. But, well, of uh, course, he, he raining, it breaks. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's not exactly watertight. <laughs> no, no. But uh, he, he can walk a whole day before needing another charge, and that's actually part of the rules. He's only allowed to charge his battery pack once a day. Yeah. And I think, you know, to, to be honest, to, to walk continuously for a day on 12 AA batteries, I'm impressed. It's pretty, it's pretty remarkable. I'm impressed. That's some energy efficiency there. I think that says a lot for Panasonic. It's, as you say, a very, very good uh, marketing stunt there. Yeah, yeah. And he's running on their batteries, obviously, Panasonic batteries. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> Wouldn't be Sony yeah. batteries. He'd be, he'd be on fire then. <laughs> sometimes. He will sometimes be on fire. <laughs> yeah. Other times he'll be working fine. That's true. Now, Brett, over the course of the podcast, we've actually just, in fact, more recently, we've been covering a, a plane. We've been following the adventures of the solar-powered plane in Switzerland. And uh, there's another little update story now. I think initially, the, the, I think the very first story was when they, they built the solar-powered plane and they did a proof-of-concept flight, I think a, a few hundred metres, 
And yep. then they uh, flew a bit further and then they did a, I think a 24 hour flight, which is significant if you think about it. Massively solar, significant for a solar, solar powered flight. Because yeah, so not only can it show that its solar cells can charge it, but that the batteries will last during the, the dark hours. Absolutely. So this latest story now is that it's been uh, flying around Switzerland, pulling in and out of international airports and actually fitting in, because uh, up until now it had its own airspace, but yep. now it's actually integrated into public airspace and you know, ah, communicating with the towers and whatnot. It's a next step in their pushing this technology and testing this technology for their ultimate outcomes, their commercial outcomes for a commercial solar-powered aircraft. So, yeah, it's brilliant to see, and it's, and it's working well and drawing big crowds. Oh, I, yeah, it's deliberately flowing at a low altitude so people can actually watch it go past and flying as slowly as it, as it can as well. Mm-hmm. In fact, they did a photo <laughs> competition as part of this, didn't they, as well? So what they're asking is for people to submit their photos of the plane and they're going to do a, you know, pick out the best photo of it passing <laughs> overhead. Excellent. Mm. So very Don't nice. There you go. It. Yeah. So everything is going smoothly so far. Excellent. Good what stuff. Is, what's next on their plans for after they've done this round Switzerland airport dash? Well, I don't know. They might send it to Afghanistan, maybe. No, <laughs> I don't know. No, I don't think so. Next year, they're doing international yeah, flights, aren't 2011, they? 2011, I think they've got scheduled international flights to see how it goes in, in international airspace. And then 2012, they've got something big planned as well, haven't they? Yeah, something really big. Transatlantic. <laughs> and their biggest test of all will be 2013, the, the pinnacle of aircraft flying. The, the biggest challenge possible for modern flight. That's uh, complete around the world. Yeah, that'll be awesome. Mm. Mm. So there you go. That's the update on that one. And Brett, that pretty much concludes our international section of the podcast. Let's take our usual musical interlude. What do you say to that? All righty then. Okay, let's do it. Yes, let's. Just hum better this time. <laughs> yeah. No, no, we'll get the band ready. Here we go. Don't go away. We'll talk about the New Zealand stories very soon. Right, welcome back, everyone. Want to talk about a couple of stories. First up, inthehouse.co.nz is a website that's been hacked. And the thing about this site is it's not just any site. What, Brett, what is inthehouse.co.nz? It's the official on-demand website where you can watch the proceedings in the House of Representatives in New Zealand Parliament. So it's been hacked? It's been hacked. It's been hacked by the relatively infamous Turkish hacker Iskorpitix. I can't pronounce that. Iskorpitix, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. What he said. Um, yeah, but he's uh, got a pretty good reputation for generally hacking sites and putting the, up his own graffiti. Sometimes it's got a political message, but usually it's just a basically showing off. And that's basically what he's done for this one as well, because he's replaced the In the House page with a picture which has an animated flag, which is kind of Turkish-like, with a message that says, best regards to all the world. So it's basically um, blowing his own horn about how good he is. And, well, he is pretty good. Wasn't he responsible for the largest defacement of websites in history? I, I think he was, actually. He's, yeah, over 21,000 yeah. websites in one go he's in got a huge uh, 2006. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so he's, yeah, he's hit the in-the-house uh, website in New Zealand. I don't know. I, I don't feel too badly about that. I think, they're oh, good on him. 
Oh, not not too badly. It's still he wasn't doing anything. Well, there was no real nefarious purpose to it. So that no, he wasn't. You know, that's to, why we don't feel as bad exactly. as people who, if they, if they had, um, you know, changed it to a malware site and oh, yeah. infected no, no, computers, no. we would be very up in arms very anti that but oh yeah and there's nothing to is... suggest he was hacking into parliament itself into the you know private yeah yeah there's know. nothing it's to suggest a... that that was no. occurred it was just one of your regular black hats uh defacements to to show his own skill and we know that when people like this generally get caught they'll be slapped on the wrists out of the limelight for a while and then they will be employed by somebody's national security agency <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> changing their hat color from black white so <laughs> it's really just adding to his curriculum vitae isn't it? it it has absolutely that's that's what it's all about uh now in wellington in fact a story right here uh, this, this show comes out of wellington new zealand telstra clear is apparently going to test 100 megabits a second they wow. are now that's been good for New Zealand. Massively advertising it, you know, it's been all over the place. The billboards, the bus shelters talking about this trial. It's not a lot of people in the trial, from what I've heard, but no, no, it's quite a closed trial. But hundred yes. megabits a second is wow. That's it is awesome. You really chew through your twenty-five gigabyte cap. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, boom. Yeah, you might want a 250 gig cap on that. Yes. One hour, boom, you've got no no cap left. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> you download everything. You've used up your cap. It's a good way of eking out many extra you know, uh, traffic allotments from people. <laughs> I think it's nice that Telstra Clare are flexing their muscles a little bit because it, it, you know, adds a bit of pressure to telecom, you know, it keeps them on, you know, on the ball. Mm-hmm. With this, the whole fibre everywhere, rural broadband initiatives and all this stuff that's going on being pushed by the, the government, it's, it pays for the, the big telcos to actually be flexing their muscles and showing what they can do above and beyond what this uh, the government's initiatives are for. Now, by the way, you're on Telstra Clear too, aren't you, Brett? Yeah, yeah. yeah but- I, unfortunately, I'm not one of the like six people. Involved oh. in that. <laughs> oh no! I was going to actually ask you. Yeah, wouldn't wouldn't we all? Now, I was going to ask you whether you got the letter from Telstra Clear saying that they're upgrading the plans and increasing the bandwidth caps. No, I, I've heard no, lots that. of people have, but I have not seen unless it's fallen down somewhere in the the pile of mail or just somehow didn't get delivered to us. I have not seen this thing. I've been looking out for it. Well, actually, I, I think it might have been an email. It might have like been... the fourth person to say that they've got this thing about yeah. the, the doubling and increasing of things and making it cheaper because it's really difficult when you're trying to maintain your allotted traffic limit so that you can maximize the amount of usage but not go over. <laughs> and it's quite difficult these days with all of the streaming, all of the high deaf stuff that you can get off YouTube and you can watch from the the on-demand sites. It's really annoying when you've got a couple of days left to roll over and that's when you hit your peak and you get given another block and then you get to use a whole one gig of your 25 gig traffic over the next two days or you attempt to blitz as much of that <laughs> traffic block as possible. So I think the, the doubling of it is brilliant. I'm just waiting for the letter that says that's happened to us. Well, Brett, that's episode 85 complete, I'd say. Indeed. Oh, one last thing to uh, announce, yeah, I go think, is to keep an eye on the, we've talked about tablets for ages. The CEO of Dell has been flashing around the 7-inch tablet, so fingers crossed, coming soon.
Ooh. Something to look out for, definitely. Yeah. We'll see if people sue Dell because it's going to run Android. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Don't you love this painted suit we live in? <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> All right, Brett, you're a wonderful co-host. Thank you very much for co-hosting episode 85 with me. As always, it is a pleasure, Ed. And thank you to all our listeners who really make the show. Without you, we wouldn't have a show. And see you all again next week. Till then, take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.